Hello, friends. Welcome back to At Home with the Lectionary. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, here we are on... This is uh, proper nine is what we're looking at here. So here we are at the end of June, and uh, we have received some kind comments. Thank you. Thank you for reviewing or commenting or sending us emails. Um, and a recent one that came in this week, someone was wondering a couple things. It sounds like maybe why we record early in advance. If you've noticed, often we are recording about a week and a half in advance, almost two weeks before the uh, Sunday we're talking about. And we do this uh, because we want to make sure those who are preparing a sermon who maybe would come listen to this at the front end of their sermon preparation would have time to do that. Well, there are some pastors who are on a Friday before a Sunday preparing a sermon. Uh, Also know that many of you start earlier in the week. Yep. So we just want to make sure that the information or if anybody wants to use it, we figure if anyone's going to use this podcast to help with a sermon, they're going to do it on the front end of their sermon prep, uh, just to kind of stir up questions and wondering. Yeah. So if you subscribe, you'll often see the new episode drop will be two Sundays from where you are. Yeah. Thursday or Friday. Usually Thursday or Friday. And and so it's about a week and a half, but that's why. So can get a jump on things if you want, or wait and listen to it closer to the Sunday. You said somebody was also asking or just wondering why we go in reverse order. Yes. That's a good question. It is. I can't remember I the original no. reason. <laughs> there was an original reason we did it. Yeah. No, originally my thought was just that um, originally we didn't have chapter breaks in the podcast. Yes. And I thought, well, you know, if anybody comes here, probably the lesson they're most likely to be preaching on, or perhaps most likely uh, interested to wonder about, would be the gospel reading that typically has prominence in in the pulpit. And so um, my thought, and Marissa's, was that we would do that first, so that if anybody came to it, they could listen to that right up front. Nowadays, you got, I mean, just in that short amount of time, nowadays you've got chapter um, placement or whatever we you want to say. We figured out how to do them, we figured, is really what happened. I think that's new technology. <laughs> it's new to me, so oh right. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, now people can jump right to whatever they want to listen to. So even so, we've decided to retain this backwards uh, pathway through the, the lections. I've come to really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, we kind of are attached to it. But part of why we like it is because, you know, the readings, when they're read on a Sunday, they kind of build toward the gospel reading. That's the feeling you get. So for our purposes, as we wonder about them and kind of try to look beneath and, and under and around them, uh, we start with the gospel reading as a way of kind of reverse engineering that experience. So you start with where it's all going, and that kind of sets the framework for then looking at the rest of the lessons. And it kind of anchors our conversation, I would say, yeah, that's in true. that often we're returning to how does this in, inform our understanding of the gospel passage? So. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for the thoughtful input, listeners. That's right. And uh, let's dig into the word here. We've got got some interesting texts, as always, but um, some kind of lengthy story. We've got some lengthy stories this time, so that'll be fun. But we always open with prayer, and we pray first. uh, We pray by using the collect appointed for this Sunday. So, listeners, would you please join us, and let's pray together. Oh God, you have taught us to keep all your commandments by loving you and our neighbor. Grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit, that we may be devoted to you with our whole heart, and united to one another with pure affection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, since we go in reverse order, then the first one we are looking at is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, 
and it skips right over and goes to 16 through 20. Marissa, well, are you going to be our first I'm reader? I'm going to read it, and you know I'm not going to skip over. No, I know you're not going to, because actually what it's skipping over is Jesus' pronouncement of woes, if I'm not Pronounce, mistaken, right? Right. you got to have Usually, that. unless it's... It's one thing I don't enjoy about the lectionary. I do understand often they're skipping. It's not so much that they want to opt out of difficult passages, but I think they acknowledge that sometimes these are passages that there's no guarantee a preacher is going to expand or give special attention or context to them. And so I think sometimes they're like, ah, well, we'll remove them. I don't, I don't enjoy that aspect. So when it's a small skip, I always like to read the full text. So here we go. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. After this, this being the passage we just read last time about the followers who are wanting to come follow Jesus after they left the village of the Samaritans who had rejected them and James and John want to call down fire. Some followers come to follow Jesus, but they all have various reasons for not after this. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. And this, these next verses are the verses the lectionary skips. I thought even that was, was supposed to be skipped. Was Was that verse 12 that you just read? It was. Yeah. So even that. Okay. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. (coughs) Excuse me. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here ends the reading. Hmm. Uh-oh, we lost her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Allergic reaction to those verses. Oh. They were supposed to be omitted, and this is what you get for reading them. Uh, yeah, so, okay, this is commonly known as the 70 being sent out. Jesus sends out the 70. It is, but it's the 72. Uh, the 70. 
72. Yeah, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And they're going in pairs. So this is going to be 36 pairs. Am I doing the math right there? Yeah, you are. But why does why does the Bible I'm looking at say the 70? Oh, I've got a little note. Yeah. Some manuscripts us. read 70. That's all mine says. I'm reading from the CSB. <laughs> Let's see if the NET with all their yeah. textual notes uh, give us something more. They do. It says there is a difficult textual problem here. And in verse 17, where the number is either 70 in many manuscripts and several church fathers or 72. The more difficult reading is 72 since scribes would be prone to assimilate this passage to several old Testament passages that refer to groups of 70 people. This reading also has slightly better manuscript support. 70 could be pre- preferred if scribes drew from the tradition of the number of translators of the Septuagint, etc., etc. All things considered 72 is a more difficult reading and accounts for the rise of the other. And the NET is always, if you ever read their notes again and again, explaining that uh, for this group of translators, at least, they consistently default to the more difficult reading because it's less likely to have been accidentally let through. It's more common that people would tend to try and make things make sense, make it match or or make it align. So it seems a little counterintuitive when you first learn that, that it's almost like a rule for translators. Mm-hmm. When you first learn that, it seems a little counterintuitive. Like instead, wouldn't they want to choose the easier reading? Cause that makes more sense. It's mm-hmm. cleaner and everything, but that that's true. Maybe their, their hearts want it, but um, history generally is going to support this idea mm-hmm. that a, a scribe is not going to, create something complicated but that rather they're going to over their mind is going to fix something complicated right. into something simpler or, or more, more and more so sensible. in cases where there's not contextual i mean obviously there are other things if there's contextual evidence that a scribe added something or things like this or robust manuscript support but when things are contested yeah they're going to default to that. So, so anyway, two of these disciples are, are in question here. I don't know right. which ones they are, but they're they the maybe went. They're the women. They're the women. Just kidding. Oh, <laughs> I refuse to be baited into that <laughs> that soapbox. Well, <laughs> I think there were more than just two women in the crowd, I'm considering how many. <laughs> Jesus seems to be almost exclusively supported by women. So the, the scribes yeah. wanted to cut them out. Yeah, that's what, what I'm the implying. scribes were thinking. Anyway, um, oh this is gosh. the famous passage that you often hear in missions, the harvest is abundant, the workers are few, Lord of the harvest, this metaphor of the harvest coming in. That's right. You mean in Jesus's response afterward? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Jesus's response. What do you, th- what, what strikes you about his instructions? I mean, he's giving them very specific instructions. Yeah, he is. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. So many things are curious to me and it's been a while since I've studied this passage. It's interesting that he sends them as pairs, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I wonder at that. And people often will use that as an example for commissioning as well. It's not good to right. send somebody out alone sort of a thing. I don't know what you think of that. Yes or no? I don't know. Um, and then, yeah. I the, think it's kind it's of forcing the text to say I something I think it's there, forcing but... it too. But he says, so he says, um, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That's like his mm-hmm. opening line for Have the fun. commissioning. Yeah. <laughs> He also says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. But right. but the next thing he says is, I'm sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. And and immediately on the coattails of that, he gives kind of the 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 more mechanical instructions. That's right. where he says, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, greet no one on the way. So some people have said, okay, this is, 
you know, they shouldn't have extra stuff, no right. money belts. You don't want to be no robbed. Plans. They don't want to be vulnerable. Yeah. Others have said, yeah, it shows that they will have to have faith in God to provide those things. Others have pointed out that it it was Jesus's way of subtly telling them, you you will be successful. You know, like mm-hmm. it's don't worry about it. You know, like this is guaranteed. Um, I'm I'm specifically sending you out without provisions as a way of of guaranteeing for you that you will be accepted. As well, you go and along. later they're sent out with provision, right? There's something distinct here. There's another, a different send out. Another send out. Mm-hmm. So um, there is something distinct here. I have a question before we yeah. jump forward. So he Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Yeah, now go, I'm sending you out. So do you think he's saying something separate? Like, mm. is he sending them out to the harvest? Or is he, is this almost like a preface to the harvest? Is as they're going, are they to be praying that the work would multiply? Or, I, yeah. or do you think it's, it's a pray and... Ta-da, you're the answer to this prayer. Because that's that's how I've his kind of historically read it, but it doesn't make sense to me as I'm thinking in the same breath why, why I mean, he honestly, would say that. It is a little bit it's odd that he would say that like that. Um, so I'm wondering if he's referring to the the future harvest. Yeah, I what I'm wondering here in terms of if I were to attempt to answer that question would be what are the other, um, where is it here? Um, what are the other gospels? How do they okay. record this? So I'm, I'm well, you hunt that up. Hunt that I'm going to make one other observation. Yeah, I am noting this time in both verse seven and eight, Jesus instructs them to remain in the same house, uh, the person of peace who welcomes them in, right? Eating and drinking what they offer. And if they, and, um, in any town where they welcome you, eat the things set before you. And I'm wondering if they're only going to Jewish towns or Jewish households. I mean, they're going before him to the places he's about to go. But would this have been a problem for them? Or do you think this is a foretaste of Peter's vision or a hint? Like, don't, don't worry, just eat whatever's set before you. I'm trying to put on the lens of what right. a Jew keeping the dietary laws, because otherwise that's a odd thing to instruct. Like I wouldn't, we I wouldn't want- necessarily instruct each other with that of of like go <laughs> go do the missions tri- missions trip, you know, go go fill the pulpit in another city and make sure you eat what they give you. I mean, I, I wouldn't take it as, I I don't read that as content so much as quantity. So like when I read it, it's it's Jesus's way of saying, you know, not like you're free to eat that stuff regardless of its status of cleanliness, but rather don't feel bad about taking food from them. Mm. Like you feel free okay. to receive that. That's how I read the, it. Well, he does say the worker is worthy of his wages. Yeah. That's, anyway, that's what I read. But you're right. He says it twice, he right? He says it twice. So like I was just in the house, eating and drinking what they give you. Yeah. You know, if you've if you've ever had any sort of dietary restriction, not a law, but say an intolerance or allergy, this can be a, a, says, a stressful situation, a stressful right? Like, how do you eat? Well, I don't mean like as a commandment, but just eating in a stranger's home. How do you welcome their receive their hospitality? Not eat, you know. I know different cultures. That's that's very offensive. I'm just. It's a very loose jump, but it making a jump to dietary laws, which would have been so much more important to them, and they wouldn't have broken that yeah. if that is anyway. 
just curious about yeah. that. Yeah, I don't know. The, I mean, the other thing is that, so you asked, so this is, um, I'll jump, jump back. over to Matthew. Just an yeah. observation. <laughs> no, no, it ties, no in, it ties in a little bit because um, you, you asked about... Um, Okay, so I was I was drawing the parallel and saying, well, what about the other gospels' treatment of this? Yes. Particularly Jesus' statement, "The harvest is plentiful, but right. the laborers are few." So if you look for that in Matthew, you end up uh, it, it ends up being the precursor to Jesus sending out the twelve. Actually, mm. now when he sends out the twelve, he specifically says, "Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town oh. of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." So there, you would that's think a different. That the, does he say anything food, about eating and drinking? There? He does. He says um, that um, take nothing with you, for the laborer okay. deserves his food. Uh, he specifically oh, says okay. food in that one, rather Interesting. than okay. wages. So, but we've already noted the fact that there are two sending outs. Um, yes. So I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I would have to. Do some more digging. If you're a listener, maybe right now you're thinking, oh, you guys, it's it's easy. You just go over here. That's what Google is for, you know. It's but um there's there there are there are multi there are two accounts of him sending out disciples slash apostles. So um and apparently there's seventy or seventy two of them as well. So. Um I think one of the things that jumps out uh, to me here, of course, is that they you know, they come back in awe about Jesus's power mm-hmm. over the demons, um, th- their own power over the demons mm-hmm. in Jesus's name. That's pretty wild for them. So, but remember what we read last week was was it just last week the the healing of the demoniac? It was several so, weeks ago, but yes, was it? I think it was just last week. The, last week we were we were doing the Samaritan village, but maybe it was the week before. Anyway, the demoniac. You were preaching on it last week. <laughs> My, I'm so out of touch with time. Um, yeah, I was thinking of what was Luke chapter eight, mm-hmm. the the man on the east coast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, <laughs> are you sure that wasn't last? <laughs> that was just last Sunday when I preached it. I thought, you, yeah. right? But we're two weeks. But we're Here's two more week in advance. Okay. We're a week in advance. Yes, so I'm, there's I'm throwing myself reading. off. Wow, that's hilarious. So yeah, readings two two Sundays ago were of readings. So, but that would have been Luke eight. They've already seen that by the mm-hmm. time we get to Luke ten. So they've watched Jesus be mightily and frighteningly powerful over the demons, and now they go out and they have this experience, and they're they're pretty wowed by it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big piece of this. But then also, what's Jesus's response to that? It's pretty interesting, right? They they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, and what mm-hmm. does he say? I was watching Satan fall that's from dramatic. heaven like lightning. Yeah, that's his. That's his next statement. It's just you know what what triggers that memory that, and he wants to tell them. He wants to say mm-hmm. that, but it's a it's a it's a dynamic, powerful moment. Just mm-hmm. those words, and to imagine Jesus prior to our history uh, of humanity watching that moment happen. I don't know. It kind of gives me shivers. And I wonder if, because he follows it with, look, I've given you authority to trample snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, nothing at all will harm you. I wonder if there's a sense of even how sometimes parents will reassure their children of the truth in the middle of their fears. Hmm. It is an amazing thing for the disciples, uh, for the followers of Jesus, and they're wondering at it. And he's saying, look, all authority I'm giving to you, nothing will harm you. Um, yeah. 
Uh, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this this bit that the lectionary skips. Yeah, the woes. So we have, it's prefaced by, well, first I want to observe that in verse 9, he says, heal the sick who are there. That's the, that's the pri- primary imperative and once they them. come to them. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. So right. these are tied together. The proclamation of the kingdom is tied with healing the sick, with the restoration. Right. And when towns reject that and don't mm-hmm. welcome him, them in the ministry of healing and proclamation. It's wipe the dust off their feet, but still proclaiming, know that the kingdom of God has come near, still proclaiming the gospel, but not the healing. I think that's interesting. No, they, they, they don't want to receive they it. They don't right? want to receive it. They don't want the healing Jesus's followers are offering, which is interesting. I would want to sit with that a little bit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then he jumps into essentially a comparative statement here saying, Oh, it's more tolerable for these, you know, infamous old Testament cities that came under judgment mentioned many times in the prophetic books for a whole host of sin and oppression and behavior. That's antithetical to the way God wanted his people to live. And he's saying they would have, repented if they had seen the miracles that were done, the healing yeah. that will be done. What do you think about this? Well, I mean, it, it fits in with his sequence there in the sense that he's, he's, he's imagining the disciples going into these towns, right? And he, there, that the kingdom of God has come near to them. These towns are going to witness at some level. Um, honestly, I, I don't think it's like the disciples will knock at the front door of the town and then and say, can we come in and do mm-hmm. some miracles and preach preach they're the like, news nah. of the kingdom? And they're like, no, we reject you. So instead, what happens is they're going to work their way into a town. It is going to be like the the two weeks ago, the right. village of the Gerasenes. It is going to be that concept where they're going to come in. They're going to start doing the stuff. They're going to start saying the kingdom of God has come near. They're going to start healing the sick. And how will the town respond to that? Well, you know, they're going to start right. driving out demons. So this mm-hmm. is a this is our two weeks ago scenario. Will the people respond by saying, nope, get out of here? Right. Or will they respond by saying, give us more? And so when he begins to say, you know, woe to you, when he compares towns like Chorazin and and Bethsaida, um, he's he's talking about towns where he's already, he has personally already done these kind of Mm -hmm. works and they've rejected him. So the, yeah, so then he, he pulls on, you know, Sodom and Tyre and Sidon and saying, yeah, you you guys are worse than them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that it, that adds well, up to me. And I think a couple thoughts that stirs up. One, even reflecting, maybe we we mentioned this when we were talking about the demoniac, but in reflecting on the community's rejection of that work and of Jesus, is thinking how, I mean, we can think of modern day examples for sure come to mind of. Communities, religious or otherwise, who reject seeing oppressed and bound people set free Hmm. for a variety of reasons. But a big one being it changes the way things have always been. messes with the balance of the ecosystem. It's a a different order. It's a different social kingdom, essentially. And so in listening to this passage, I'm thinking, yes, and Jesus is reiterating 
That's exactly what's happening. The kingdom of God is coming near. The old mm-hmm. way, Satan is, he, I saw him fall like lightning. That way of doing things is done. And you have authority over them. And I well, Jesus that, has authority over them. And well, he's he giving gives them, it to them. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, thank yeah. you for that clarification. Sure. That's important. And he, the implication here is there's going to be resistance. There's going to yeah. be towns maybe many, I mean, I wonder how many towns rejected them. Maybe many who, who don't want this, who see the healing or the different orders and who say, no, Jesus has experienced it. And I love in verse one, it says, these are the places he's about to go. So they're the forerunners. They're Mm -hmm. kind of doing the work of John the Baptist. They're going forward. They're proclaiming the kingdom, saying the kingdom of God has come near. And and here it comes. Here comes Jesus following after us. You're right. Because it it opens, it says, and he sent them ahead of him in Paris. So yeah, these are places he's going. Well, and, and again, to the point of, um, they come back tell rejoicing in all this, all the, the, what they were able to see, what they were able to do. Mm. But again, my point is that, um, yeah, that could have even happened in towns that rejected them. Absolutely. So it's interesting to think that their rejoicing doesn't necessarily mean they had good results overall in terms of people receiving them. I but, think you know, also it's notable. I'm trying not to say interesting. I say everything's interesting in these podcasts. <laughs> oh, that's, that's an <laughs> I've got a lot of interesting things. Interesting observation. You um, I, I think it's remarkable. <laughs> You to see my here. Here's a thesaurus. thesaurus. Here, here you go. Um, that what they their their response is the demons submit. So I think we can surmise they encountered a lot of demonic deliverance. Yeah, they that was primary. They're not healing work was a part of that because Jesus instructs them to do that. But what's striking to them is that the the demons are submitting in Jesus's name. And I can't remember who I heard talking about this, but was, I don't know, maybe it's floating around in my subconscious of discussions on uh, Christian faith and practice is that we on this side of the cross have, we can study history and we can examine it, but we have no concept of, the world before Jesus's authority broke through. And even with the incomplete, not yet, and fulfillment moment we're in, this world was maybe riddled in a different way than we even understand with oppression and suffering and demonic possession. And yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting I uh, thought. I said interesting twice there. There you go. There you That's go. a fascinating thought. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. yeah, what are what, what was reality prior to the what arrival was reality of Christ? prior to that? And and certainly what is reality? I mean, I've heard the closest parallel I can think of with this is sometimes you hear from missionaries who are serving in other parts of the world where the gospel has not been yet proclaimed. And they often are the ones who most easily are, are encountering this kind of biblical manifestation of demonic activity. And that's not to discount the very real uh, supernatural work of evil in our own areas that are influenced by the church. But I think it's remarkable in places where the gospel hasn't been proclaimed. Just real quick, what do you mean yes. influenced by the church? You just mean areas of the world where the church is present. Yes, okay, I'm not. Gotcha. I'm not trying. I wasn't sure if you yeah, meant like the church's I'm not trying to say was... like, oh, ta-da! There's no demonic activity in Got areas it. where the gospel okay. has some point historically been proclaimed. But I do think there is a distinction. I do think there sure. is. A, I think it's C.S. Lewis who says every 
moment is either claimed by heaven or counterclaimed by the enemy. And mm. I think there's a reality that there is a, the language of kingdom is apt. There is a re- reclaiming of yeah. the kingdom of God and announcing of it. Well, the, the demonic is real, and certainly this this passage is yet another one giving us that reminder. And um, one of the things I love about it, and then we need to we need to press on. But um, one of the things I love about it is that Jesus's final note on it is he says all of that. You know, I've saw Satan fall like lightning. I've given you power over snakes, scorpions, all this over the enemy. Um, but he says. Um, but don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But here's what you can rejoice about. Here's what's worthy of it, that your names are written in heaven. So Okay, I know so we like, need to move on, but what do you think? Okay, he's really giving do. me the face. We really need to move <laughs> we on. do. Okay, so as we turn to the next passage, <laughs> I would want to know, in case yeah. you want to know as someone, in, I would want to know, what does that mean, names written in heaven? I mean, it brings to mind other verses. Yeah. I would want to know what is the reference for that. I would also be curious to know, the geography here, all these cities he mentioned, I think you mentioned in passing, Aaron, that Jesus has been to some of them. So I'd maybe yeah. want um, a speaker to draw my mind back to what yeah. happened when Jesus was in, in Corazin, Bethsaida, Bethsaida o- yeah. Capernaum. What, what, what was the summary message mm-hmm. to Sod- Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon that point. how that again would have fell on the disciples' ears and yeah. Oh, many things. I would want to know many things. <laughs> well, I'm sure you will have no questions for our next reading, sure which is the conclusion of, of Galatians. So, I, that, you know, it's going to stir right. up all kinds of stuff. Okay, here we go. Uh, in the interest of time, we press on. So the reading is Galatians 6. You've got the first six verses as optional. I'm not going to read them because, <gasps> yeah, you can get the gasp there. Um, I'm going to start at verse 7, which is where the, the, the really assigned reading wow. begins. Yeah. That's you, what happens when we alternate readings. I, what, I you took to all skip. of that time talking about the gospel because right, you I'll like the gospel so much. Yeah, I know you will. I know you will. Here we go, folks. Galatians 6, that 7 through good. 16. Okay. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. It's worth noting that that's here ends mm-hmm. the reading and there are just a couple more. Yeah, read them. Verses. Okay, from now on <laughs> let no one cause trouble for me for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. 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 Paul knows how to close it out, doesn't he? Yeah, but he's he's like us. He can't quite he like he goes <laughs> like, to land this, it and he's and like, well, just one more thing. <laughs> like so here's my theory on this is that verse eleven is is this verse that says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Yes. So often um 
epistles, letters like this would be written by a professional scribe, so they looked nice, uh, or even perhaps as Paul ages and his his eyes are failing, perhaps the the ability to write neatly. Or maybe they never fully recovered. I've heard that as well. His eyesight, that maybe maybe that was the The thorn thorn in his flesh from the vision of Jesus when he was blind. And that then would, came, but that poses anyway. other problems in my mind about right? the capacity for healing that was given him. But anyway, um, interesting. There's the word. Uh, verse eleven though says that, and and so I've heard it suggested that this is actually where. So verse ten would be where the scribe puts down the pen. Oh, verse eleven yes. is where Paul picks it up in order to close with his own large letters that people recognize yeah, his handwriting. Kind of a go, personal Paul's. benediction. Yeah, so that's how it's supposed to end. And in fact, I think elsewhere in his epistles, he does this at least one other time. Where he oh, says, you think like, it's supposed to end at verse eleven? Or here's, I think here's what I mean. I mean. It's like his P.S. Here's, here's what I mean. No, n- yes and no. So I think he does this at least one other epistle. I should look that up. But um, he's closing. That's supposed. So when he switches over to his own penmanship and says, "See, here's my own handwriting." That's his cue. That's where he's supposed to say, "Anyways, love you guys. God bless you. Talk to you sometime soon." But because he's Paul, and it's hard for him to stop on some of these points that are so important to him. He says that, and then he goes into just one more time, I just need to firsthand write down about this issue about those who compel you to right. be circumcised. Like, he's just, he's not done. He's not going to you know? let it go. And he's and so he kind of goes off on that a little bit. And I don't mean that, you know, dismissively to what he's saying. Um, but he, he's going he's gonna to just hammer that he's one one more sure time. He's going to make sure they get it. Yeah, and then he comes to what would typically be the closing statements that he would mm-hmm. put in his own handwriting, which is things like, you know, no, please let no one cause trouble for me. I bear in my body the bear marks of Jesus. Grace of our Lord Jesus mm-hmm. Christ be with you and your spirit, brethren. Amen. So, um, anyways, just interesting to imagine the, yeah. the human, the human, Paul, yeah. you know, in that moment. Personal I, I appreciate letter. that. I mean, I think, I know we had to, sk- we had to <clears throat> skip the first few verses, but we were in Galatians yeah. Last week in the close of chapter five, which if you remember was a contrast between walking by the spirit versus the deeds of the flesh. And this is the fruit of the spirit passage. And then closes, chapter five closes with let us not become conceited, provoking one another, being jealous of one another. And immediately he says, if a person is discovered in sin, this is the first verse of chapter six, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, there's a spirit of humility. Pay, pay close attention to yourself so you're not tempted to carry one another's burdens. All of this is leading up to. So you're reading the verses. I'm that trying I not to because I'm not trying to be correct. Verses. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to, but go back and read them more carefully. I'm just serving them because I think it's all really important. Lead up to. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A person will reap what he sows, and I think sometimes that's thrown around as a hammer verse. Huh, how so? How is that? Um, how are people thumped by that? I think sometimes it's you'll reap what you sow. Like if you live a wild life, like you're gonna reap a a quick, you know, a young death or something. You know, okay. like if you're ravaged by addiction, then you're gonna reap what you sow with okay. those choices. I, I would I would agree with that though. Where well, maybe I, that's where a principle. Um, my my observation here is yeah, that yeah. the context of this is the fruit of the spirit in correction with gentleness and humility 
And I don't often see that opening verse expressed with gentleness, kindness, and humility so much as legalism, honestly. Like, live by our rules, or don't you know you're going to reap what you sow unless you get it together? And I think maybe the the principle here is it, what you... Yes, you sow to your your the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. The one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. But he's just described to us what sowing to the spirit looks like. It's not external actions. No. It's not legalism. Okay, I think it I is a fruit of the spirit is what you're sowing to. It is the gentleness and kindness and concern for the one who falls. You're restoring in gentleness. Well, actually, I, I might clearly communicate. It is, or? but I think I would go even a step further and say that actually, the fruit, the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh, these are actually what you reap. They're not what you sow. Mm-hmm. This is the fruit. This is the outpouring, yes, right? So that's a good. So maybe what people are trying to say when they misuse it, according to your description, that actually what they should be saying is that that fruit tastes really. That fruit's going to taste really bad. So like they're not pointing to what a person's sowing; they're pointing to what a person's reaping. And when a person has uh, corrupt, when when I let's say it so it doesn't sound pompous, when when I have corrupt behavior, that is actually the fruit of my sowing uh, the right. flesh rather than the spirit. So I'm actually already reaping when I make those terrible choices. Right. It's just a descriptive passage, right? Here. So right, what so happens? The, the the Paul is not saying Aaron. Shame on you for making bad choices in that right. moment. You're going to reap what you've sown. In other words, you're going to reap God's anger or my judgment, judgment at yeah. you because you've sown bad decisions. Rather, he's saying your bad decisions are the fruit that you reap because you sowed in the flesh previously, as opposed to sowing in the spirit. And sowing is not, in Paul's way, sowing to me um, does not seem like your actions. It is posture of your heart. It is your preferences. It is your 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 commitment, which then, you know, but again, is born out in fruit, the fruit of action and behavior. It is. And I think those those skipped verses demonstrate that this principle, the law of sowing and reaping, or however it's described, that sure. is just a reality. You do reap what you sow is not a th- like a promised threat. It is a descriptive reality, right. but the like the book of Proverbs, like the Just book of Proverbs, it like it is. but the the job of the church and brothers and sisters in Christ is to look out for one another, not in a provoking, conceited, ugly way, but in in a way that is restorative in gentleness that is humble knowing we too could be tempted that helps people carry one another's burdens. And even verse three, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one examine his own work. Then he can take pride in himself and not compare himself with someone else. And just go ahead. Just one, the last one for each one will carry his own load. Um, there you go. Now she has read all the verses that I said that we weren't going to read. I'm, there I'm you go. Trying, you did it. You did I'm it. I'm not trying to sneak it in there. I so just, subversive. I think this is actually one where it's so important because we rarely get that full flow. We yeah. get the fruit of the spirit isolated. We get the law of sowing and reaping isolated. No, I, we we, we, we often get, get the fruit of the spirit without the fruit of the flesh. That, right. That's often preached and talked about. I mean, Paul gives two columns. We often get, yeah. you know, pay close attention. You might fall without the, the greater context. And I think all of it, it really interplays off each other, all these principles. And, the, and that we may be able to pull from them 
observations or truths, but I think Paul's purpose in putting them all together is not, of course not. He's about to say, don't, don't try and make, he's about to critique those who are the circumcision, who want to make a good showing in external manners. So right. he's clearly not saying um, a behavior modification, sowing and reaping model here or something. So I, I, anyway, yeah. I think I'm, that's a very long winded way of saying this is one where I think as always with the epistles, it makes me want to be like, well, where do you start that context? Well, you read the whole epistle. <laughs> when you, <laughs> yeah, when you, when you started digging into chapter five, as, as you were leading up to six, I was like, you're going to have to go to chapter one with this. Right. Galatians, I think particularly is one. unlike some of the other epistles. Galatians really is, it is, it's not linear in the sense that it's like a narrow rail, but to me it feels like a, a wave. It's very broad, but it is all moving in one direction. Yeah. So I think you, you do have to read it as a whole. And go ahead. I'm gonna, Anything else? Are I'm you going to make us go I on? Am. I know. Okay. I'm a so I have to intense. say something, I've got though. two things to comment. Okay, and then you I'm make moving comments, on. and then while we move on, I'll, I'll say. I know you will. <laughs> okay, let's do that. That sounds good. Um, uh, what, what Two things come to my mind. Uh, one, of course, I would want to spend a little more time pondering Paul's statement about... Um, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on That's my body the brand marks of Jesus. <laughs> it's pretty boss. And also, it's like, like his chains or something. Uh, that I mean, marks he's been stoned chains. multiple he's been times. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's he's got reason to. Well, I'm pretty sure boast. the Greek word is stigma. So it's really? coming from stigma. You know, this is That's where we get stigma from. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> Paul. Paul would be like, no, it was not some weird miraculous appearance of a <laughs> of a scar. I literally got beaten in multiple towns I, and left for I dead. I don't know. Oh my goodness. To um, so that that one stands out to me. And then uh, where is it? Um, what's an, there's a great phrase that he I'll has in here. Uh, you look for it, and I'll make yeah. good use of the time, yeah. where in verse <laughs> 9, we must not grow weary in doing good. My textual note here says, we, if, we do not be, if we do not become extremely weary or give out or faint from exhaustion, in due time we will reap if we do not give up. It has that sense of like perseverance in utter exhaustion. So mm. the reminder that it may not be something that we sow to the Spirit and see that fruit right away mm. so i think that's a, a interesting emphasis he puts and i love verse 10 so so then whenever we have an opportunity let us do good to all people especially to those yeah, who belong to the family of faith and i think there's that's a, a that's a life verse there it's a life verse you know? and it's so generous yeah. especially in this context that sometimes has been used as legalistic critique the point of this is to do good to all people yeah. Um, to help restore them, to help carry one another's burdens, especially to our brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's beautiful. Here's the, you find here's yours? the one. Yeah, for me it was verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, oh, but right? a new creation. Yeah. That's just great. That's one of those ones that I think if I were preaching this, I would want to go, what, what did Paul mean by that? You know, mm -hmm. I don't feel lost when I read that or anything. And we just totally like, oh, skipped a lot over the discussion of like the most famous ones from this passage. Like the Did world we? has been crucified to me and I to the world. Yeah, well. I boat never boasted anything but the cross of Jesus. So, so much, so, so much, much there. And yet we press on. We do. Um, <laughs> With Psalm not 30. growing exhausted. <laughs> it's true. We weary. will not grow weary in doing, <laughs> doing good here. Is, is your... <laughs> Your, your phrase. Or is it all of Psalm 30? It is all of I'm Psalm 30. I'm not going to try and make a skip anything. You can't right. add anything here. <laughs> I'm going to read Psalm 30 to us. 
it is a dedication song for the house, a psalm of David. I will exalt you, O Lord, because you have lifted me up and have not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from among those going down to the pit. Sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones, and praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. When I was secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you showed your favor, you made me stand like a strong mountain. When you hid your face, I was terrified. Lord, I called to you. I sought favor from my Lord. What gain is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. You turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Here ends the reading. I think this psalm came up recently. I feel like it came up recently in the daily office, maybe. I don't know about that, but I I, I read this recently or heard it recently. Hmm. Anyways, um, Psalm 30, interesting stuff here. Uh, One of the things that I have curiosity about, if I were digging into this, I would want to explore a little bit is verse 3. Um, your, could you read me again? Your translation? I was reading from the CSB, which says, Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from among those going down to the pit, but there is a study note or just a footnote saying you spared me from among those going down. So the, the NASB says, um, you have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. And the, the, prayer book, the 1979 prayer book says, you brought me up, O Lord, from the dead. You restored my life as I was going down to the grave. I I really like the prayer book's rendering of that there. Of course, I'm saying that without having dug into and studied the Hebrew or any of the... The good old NET has a brief note saying, they they translate it as, uh, you rescued me from among those descending into the grave. That's the first half. That's Or that's the second half, actually. Say it one more time for me, I'm sorry. uh, You rescued me from among those descending to the grave. And their note is saying the, the Hebrew noun for bore, maybe, for pit or cistern is sometimes used of the grave and or the realm of the dead. So this translation is following a certain Hebrew text um, with a marginal reading that says, you kept me alive so that I did not go down into the pit. So it looks like there's yeah, maybe some interpretive the, That's what the NASB uses is that, that reading. Um, well, I just, to me, I, I like, knowing all of that, I right. still I still find preference for the 1979 BCP Psalter saying you restored my life as I was going down to the grave. I think that captures all of it with the, the, the psalmist envisions himself going down alone or with all those who would be cast down. There's this sense, though, of uh, his life was in the process mm-hmm. of being lost. It was forfeit and couldn't be recovered. And God brought him back mm-hmm. uh, as he was in the process of going down to the grave. That It's... It's not just like imminent, it's already occurring. Mm-hmm. I, that that sense of rescue is really beautiful to me. This is beautiful. I think the ups and downs of this psalm mm-hmm. 
they're brief. You know, sometimes we get this kind of overarching lament or overarching um, intensity of a psalm with like a, a closing verse. But this one, I feel like kind of goes up and down. It's, it is lament, but then joy and hope and then lament and then joy. And so it's a little bit more of a waves of emotion. And I think uh, it's beautiful promises here. And I'm thinking of it today in light of the gospel passage where the followers of Jesus were instructed to heal and proclaim the kingdom. Thinking of all the times in the Old Testament that healing was promised or provided from the Lord. And here the psalmist testifies to that, that that is the NET translates verse five as his anger lasts only a brief moment and his good favor restores one's life. Seeing how the benevolence of God, the goodness of God is what gives life and restoration and healing. Yeah. And that's one of those verses that has worked its way, I think, just into our it just, yeah. it's familiar, right? The the Psalter there for that one is, uh, uh, for his wrath endures, but the twinkling of an eye, his favor for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, the NASB, his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. The, the following half of that is also well known. Weeping yeah. may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes joy in the morning. That's NASB, morning. but yeah. I, I don't prefer that. What, what have we got here in the Psalter? His wrath endures, but the twinkling of an eye, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may spend the night. There's mm-hmm. what I'm used to. Weeping may spend the night, but joy comes in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate also the psalmist, uh, well, David, in this mm-hmm. case, it's David. it's David. I appreciate David's ability to then pivot in, in verse 7 and say, you know, and while I felt secure, I said, right. I shall never be disturbed. But, you know. This is what I mean, the waves. It feels very... Yeah. Very quick pivots yeah. in this one. Yeah. So what follows next, friends, is again him just saying, "I'll never be disturbed." And and you know he's naming the fact he's like, "You Lord gave me your favor. I'm as strong as the mountains because of that." But then God hides his face. He's filled with fear. Then he cries out to the Lord and pleads with him, saying, "Why would you send me to the pit? I can't praise you there, right? And hear me, O Lord, and be my helper." And mm-hmm. then the Lord turns his wailing into dancing. Uh, puts off his sackcloth, clothed him with joy. Uh, so yeah, he's, I mean, I think this is a, kind of a beautiful piece of David as a person is that he really, he knows the the mood swings of mm-hmm. life. He knows the full gamut of emotion. You get that sense with him. I have one more thing I want to share. Okay. This is from the NET about the dedication. So we have that it's a dedication song for the house, which my NET footnote reminds us that this could be it's unclear what the house yeah. is. What is the this house? could be that David wrote this psalm for the dedication ceremony of Solomon's temple. Another possibility, and I'm really drawn to this, is that the psalm was used on the occasion of the dedication of the second temple following the return from exile, or on the occasion of the rededication of the temple in Maccabean times. Thinking of so a psalm written by David, written by but David, then used later. But perhaps when the people return from exile and are ready to dedicate the house... This is one they pull out and say, let's praise God forever. And thinking thinking of kind of the restoration, the terror, the feeling rescued and saved after judgment and exile and wandering, uh, that they would praise the Lord in the middle of that. So mm. I'm kind of drawn to that as a dedication, a, a thought of what layers of joy would be there in, mm. in that moment as you're singing in the temple and 
finally. So that's fascinating. Well, yeah, I wonder. I wonder I with wonder. any of that. Who knows? Um, yet another way to. I mean, I love these different ways that we find ourselves wondering at God's word. And here we go to second. What would you? I always when we get to the psalm, I'm always curious. When would you preach the psalm? Because I know we have an Old Testament scholar in our um, congregation who, when he preaches, I mean, he is an expert on the psalm. So he always will preach the psalm. And it's amazing and not, not always, but most, just to be clear, but most of the time, you're right. He, time, he loves to grab the psalm. He grabs he's, the psalm. That's his current project, though. That's why. Ah, he's that's writing why. a commentary for the psalms. But uh, what... If you're not writing a commentary on the Psalms, when would be the moment where you think, because it's such a different literary type to preach from, what would you as a preacher I, I'm a fan or of when preaching do you draw the Psalm from? In, in one condition. So mm-hmm. I find a lot of the Psalms, like maybe we might say like contemporary music, contemporary pop music, finds a way to say the same thing with several verses. Mm-hmm. But it's always returning to the same chorus, right? Mm-hmm. That to me... Um, it's a that makes for a great song. It makes for great singing, but it doesn't make for great preaching mm-hmm. when you're you've really got one idea and you're just saying it several different ways. So every once in a while, though, the psalms break from that, mm-hmm. and it, anyone who you know cares is going to be like that's that's not a fair Simplistic, portrayal of the psalms, yeah. <laughs> right? But but let's just say a good number of them really do that. But uh, however, well, they're when meant got, to be sung, right? Yeah, exactly, no, right. yeah, that's the. I'm not so preaching yeah. them. We can understand them more fully, or unpack it, unpack them, or whatever you want to say. But. Yeah, I mean, hold up like Paul's epistle in Galatians to Psalm 30. Psalm 30 is more beautiful to me, but it's it's really saying. I find it still to be saying one thing. It's kind of looking at the the tension between. Uh, my confidence in God and how I'm always, there's a, uh, always a fragility because I only have confidence in God without God. I've got nothing. Now all the poets out there are shaking their heads. Yeah, that's fair. You know? <laughs> As I, are the pop I'm... singers. I know. Um, but <laughs> and we do have a fair number of poets and in we our got parish a lot of and, pop singers and uh, people who appreciate poetry. And I, I think, as someone who only took a class or two, you all of a sudden discover when you study it that there is a lot in the structure and meter and rhythm of poetry. I think similarly with the Psalms, so, but, but, no, when but, uh, you pull them apart, though, you discover there's intention in the phrasing and repetition yes. and what that emphasizes. Okay, but but that, anyone who's, so I would contend, and maybe I'm wrong, but that that ruins a poem. I mean, n- oh. nothing kills the heart of a poem like putting it on your, your table and pinning down its wings and dissecting it open, right? It's just, the beauty is kind of ruined of it. Yes, you might have interesting thoughts come Mm -hmm. from it, but that's not what the poem was written for. So I feel the same way about the Mm -hmm. Psalms. They're meant to be sung. And when a preacher stands up there and constructs what is ultimately kind of a structured, Mm -hmm. rational pacing through the Psalm that kind of, it's like walking through the, the an art gallery and talking a bunch and never letting mm-hmm. people look at the art. So um, to me, this is my struggle with the Psalms. So I, yeah. about half of the Psalms to me land that way for me, but half of them don't. Half of them, mm-hmm. I'm like, there's a progression here and actually saying something Let's about them that. actually mm-hmm. lets the people enjoy and lets the Psalms sing. So, so that would be a kind of a rare choice. It'd be a rare choice for would, me. I just feel like pick. I'm not doing it any help. Yeah. Yeah. Or the people any help. Well, maybe that was an we'll question be with a long answer. We'll Thank be you. singing them. I like it yeah. when seasonally we sing them. I did read that the ACNA at least is is trying to produce a new Psalter 
that's singable with hmm. the Psalms, um, which I love singing the Psalms. The few times we've taken retreat at a monastery, something like yeah, this, it's absolutely. lovely to chant the Psalms and, and um, like you said, not dissect them, yeah, but, yeah. but experience them yeah. in that way and without in our, sounding in our, too experiential. <laughs> in our parish, we, uh, we sing them in the season of Advent. We sing the Psalms. Is that the only time we do That's it? That's it. That's oh. all we've done. Advent and maybe Christmas. No, it's just Advent, I think. Yeah. Well, at any rate, okay. um, well, this is fun. So, thank you. That was a, yeah. that's an interesting thank you question. For your and just to be clear, um, I, it's more. It's, I, I was. Yeah. It's not a. Yeah, it's no fault of the Psalms. Other preachers are going to be able to do what I can't do. Right. With the Psalms, they'll do well with. I them. was just curious to um, your personal yeah, approach. It's, it's interesting to ponder. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last thing, and then yeah. we'll move on. But um, I, I remember in seminary we were required to in my preaching course. One of them, we were required to preach multiple two various, I think four different actual styles of preaching. Mm-hmm. And one of them I had to do was a narrative sermon. Yeah. So it's, you're basically doing like a, a one person, uh, what do you call Monologue. it? Monologue. Like yeah. Like a one person play. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's very different. So there were just a, a few of these different ways of preaching that reminded me, oh, sometimes you just need to preach it a very different, different way. way don't do your regular content. sermon so maybe a psalm is yeah. better preached that way I'll and i think it's a thought. good reminder as we turn to second kings i think it's lovely when a local church parish can have multiple preachers and not just styles but perspectives yeah. and approaches and ideally if you're reading even outside your tradition uh like your church your favorite church expression uh, it's broad certainly yeah. over church history but even in contemporary preaching and obviously we're looking for people faithful to the scriptures but there's a lot that that can bring fresh eyes to a text or to a way of approaching a text from pursuing that chorus of voices i suppose all right, but here we are at Second Kings. Well, here we are at Second Kings. I'm going to read it for us. And this is a long story and a familiar one to many people. This is Naaman being healed. And we've jumped over some of Elisha's ministry to this. So sure. last we saw, Elisha was kind of being commissioned and sent out. Here we are. Here we go. All right. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. The, then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed, and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Now it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So, Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you'll be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Uh, are, are not the, uh, sorry, are not uh, Abna and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Here ends the reading. This is such a great story. It is. such a storyteller's story. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I love the way, I don't, I don't know, I wouldn't say that this was intentional, but it's at least incidental that it ends on this note of his flesh was restored, what? Like the flesh right, of a, a small little child, child which is, is what kicks this all right. off, right? This is how this story begins, is a little child. Yes. Well, and this feels, this reads like a story of contrast to me, because oh, sure. you have... Naaman, the commander of the king of Syria's army, he's esteemed, he's respected, he's won so many military victories, he, you know, is kind of taken down by a skin disease he can't control. He's this very powerful man. We see it later when he comes, 10 talents of silver, that's, my study note is suggesting that's about... A talent is about 75 pounds. So it's about 750 pounds of silver. Oh my goodness. So 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 suits of clothes. So extraordinarily wealthy and powerful. It's like an entourage. Yeah. This is not someone with a little purse with some silver coins. No. But it's you. And we're not going to, I'm not going to do what you like to do. But this is why it goes from there over to Elisha's servant, Gehazi. Which we like, get next week. Are you going to let them walk away with all that loot? Right. Don't want well, any of and it? it's also why when they show up, the king thinks they're picking a battle because they're coming in this huge estate with all this well, wealth and demonstration of the power to say, you know, here's my servant, the great military warrior renowned for his battles, cure him of his skin disease. Well, this is, I mean, it's crazy because <laughs> the the verses have just told us that, so, the, so Naaman is the servant of the king of Aram. Right, Syria's army. In other words, and it and where does where does Naaman get this Israelite servant girl? It's because it says, now the Arameans had gone out in bands and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. Yep. So they, they've tangled with the raiding going parties. to the king. So Naaman, who just, you know, is commander of the army that has ravaged the Israelites, goes to the king of the Israelites and says, I need you to do me a solid here. You know, like, <laughs> right. of course, the king of Israel is like, you're my enemy. You just, you just, you know, ravaged our people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then here you are asking for something. Of course, this is a trick. Of course, we're going to die. We're going to yeah. die. And this is also, mm, I think Second Kings opens with 
I believe the king. Oh, nope, that's the king of Samaria. Never mind. So I would want a, yeah. a preacher to help me understand a little bit of the history between Israel and Syria at this moment in history yeah. where they're at to help understand this a little better. I mean, we mm-hmm. obviously see there's a political dynamic at play. I think it's worth noting that the king just kind of, does he tear his clothes? He tears his clothes. Yeah. Am I God? Can I kill or restore life? But that's it. it he does actually doesn't send for Elisha the prophet, but mm. Elisha the prophet hears that the king has torn his clothes and kind of says, why did you do that? Send him to me so he may know there's a prophet in Israel. So I like this attitude we're seeing from Elisha. It reminds me of when he hits the water and is like, where is Elijah's, the God, of, the Elijah? God of Elijah? You know, he is ready to declare the kingdom, if you maybe want to make that that connection. Yeah, He's ready to, to uh, prophetically declare the kingdom so the surrounding people will know there is a God in Israel, a God who restores in a very understated way, right? I also love this. This yeah. is a storyteller's story because to this powerful, pompous, uh, I mean, pompous in the sense that he comes with all this wealth and pomp right, right, and right. victorious military man, Elisha sends out a little messenger who comes with his horses and chariots to Elisha's doorway, you know, in all this estate. He sends out his messenger, go wash in the river. Yeah. Yeah. So a little servant girl, a little servant captive girl, you know, kicks this thing off. I know. I want to go comes, back to the servant girl at the end. By sure. The way, but. And then he come, you know, and then his encounter is with um, the servant of a guy who he didn't actually intend to come to. Right, he's even. not the king. Who's this guy? And then the assignment is to go do something incredibly ordinary. Yeah, so, but he, you're right, intervening in between all of those very small moments is the continued attempt to do something big. I'm going to go to the king of Aram. I'm going to get a letter from him. I'm going to go to the king of Israel. I'm going to give him the letter and say, do this thing. So, yeah, all these kind of attempts to be big, like you said, pompous in the very bland sense of the word. And yet everything that actually has significance happens in tiny things. and he's angry about it yeah, he it he, he goes him. away angry i think your translation maybe said in a rage yeah, rage yeah. and he's you know looking for the show yeah, i thought he'd come out furious. invoke the name of the lord who's got to wave his hand he's, there's a way to do this <laughs> there's a way he to do, do this. it right and it's going to be magical and i'm not going to humiliate myself by jumping in the water just because some random guy told you can almost hear the offense kind of seething under the surface there um and again it's his servants who come to him and i wonder i don't know if this is the little servant girl or other israel is servant hebrew servants or you know who who it is he's got some good servants looking out for him he does he's surrounded well um but they come to him and kind of help him gain some perspective yeah. Uh, it seems you should be happy that he's simply watching you. This is actually this easy. Is, this is working this out is well great. for you. And despite all his pomp and success, he does twice listen to his servants. That's a good right? point. That's he a good does. Episode. He and even puts weight on the words of this this uh, Israelite girl. That's that's, that's fascinating pretty out- to yeah, me. Yeah, that's pretty outstanding. And she doesn't even say it directly to him. It's to her own mistress. Right. And that gets relayed to him. It's Naaman's wife. But um, yeah, that that's interesting. Well, me. and that's why I wanted to return there. Because Go ahead, because we're, we're running out of time. Are we running out of time? Running out of time? Tell, tell us what strikes you well, about her, and then I've got one observation tying this to the gospel. Go right. Ahead. I think, as is so often the case, 
there are women all over the pages of scripture. They just are not telling the story. So they often get the quieter roles or they're behind the scenes in the sense that they're not narrating the story. So here we have two women who are significant to the outcome of the main characters, if you want to put it in a novelist form. Naaman's wife and Naaman's Naaman's servant girl. And this young girl, and this is a young girl who has been taken captive by a raiding party. I would want to know if we get any sense of her age based on the language. As a parent, I don't even want to think about it. Right. This is, I mean, this story sometimes shows up in children's Bible and it's always like the happy servant girl who's going to her mistress, right? Right. It's not the reality that this is a captive of a war or a refugee of sorts a in a totally different life, a child, a vulnerable young woman, uh, probably not young woman, but a vulnerable young girl. I just mean the, the female vulnerability in these cultures. And um, she is forced into servitude in uh, the w- home of a military the guy captain. Who, the guy who did this to her and yeah, her people. to her people. And um, so we can imagine a lot of things here i don't i don't know we but we know this and so i think if we can let that sit sit with us for a little bit of what an she's not like the king of israel who's kind of like out of touch with the lord and his prophets something about this young girl is in touch with who the lord is that the lord is a healer and restorer and that if 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 Naaman could only get there, you know, if only get to him and there's something in her character that she's not going to withhold that message. There's something in her that wishes her enemy well. And And this is the heart of, this is, this is the, you know, this is the image of God that Jesus gives us and and love your enemy. Absolutely. You know, to uh, love those who, you know, bless those who curse you, et cetera. And he says, for that's what your father in heaven does. Right? Exactly. So. And so she goes to the other woman in the story, her mistress, who's, who's Naaman's wife, and yeah. expresses to her. And I think that probably took courage. I mean, this is, like you said, kind of a ridiculous thing to suggest and an outrageous yeah. thing. Like, go to your enemies and seek out their prophet. And, you, and, and such faith. She's certain. Because what's going to happen to her if this doesn't work out? You know, if he goes all this way and isn't cured, yeah. this is a bold faith. So I love, as a woman and also as a novelist, I love these little uh, vignettes that appear on the pages of scripture, the people who yeah. we don't see the rest of their story. We don't know how they would fill in the gaps, but they're named for us and they're pivotal and their, their faith is inspiring and yeah. um, a beautiful testimony. She is essentially doing what we, I love that this is paired with the gospel because here this young servant girl is essentially doing what Jesus commissions his followers in the gospel. She is going before the healing work of the Lord, in a sense, and inviting people to it. And um, I love that connection that the lectionary is incidentally making for us. Yeah. Now, that's not too far from what I was going to say from my comment, which is just, you you expressed it that way. I'd say as a preacher, one of the things that I love is that we're missing actually the first person account for the disciples, the 70 or 72, when they get sent out. I mean, if I wanted to kind of play with uh, imagining what happens to a pair of them mm-hmm. as they go out, I I would, you know, I would, I would um, 
put this story into it. You know, I would, this is, this is, I would frame it that way. Yeah, it's yeah. a, in, in movies, they call it a frame story. So, you yeah. know, the, the gospel is your frame story. What does it actually look like for the real story is what does it look like for the disciples to go out and do that? This girl's, this girl's story is that. Yeah. You know? Lots of connections there. Yeah. So, man, now I'm ready to hear a sermon on all Me these too, things. Me too, man. How about that? So, <laughs> God be with you all those preparing sermons out there and yep. those of us like me just listening in, maybe you'll yeah. you'll find some new insight and and dive deep in your own personal study of the texts over yeah. the next few weeks. Absolutely. Well, as always, there's plenty to explore, plenty to wonder at in God's word. Thank you for opening it alongside us and uh digging in together into these texts. I'm already looking forward to next time. Me too. All right. We'll catch you next time on At Home with the Lectionary. Water level rising almost broke All the politicians have gone up in smoke You take up your cross I'll take mine We'll go up to higher ground and wait out the time Jesus don't pass us by Jesus don't tarry now Some say Jesus, it might as well be tonight We should not be troubled for the Bible to say War, tribulation will greet the final day Brother, share the gospel Sister, do the same Sing the saintly chorus till we join that refrain Jesus, don't pass us by Jesus, don't tarry now Some say you won't return Jesus, it might as well be